Hi, welcome to the HIPSA podcast. My name is Peyton Watt, and I'm the president of the Health Policy Student Association, otherwise known as HIPSA. And I am Mike Mahalski, the vice president of HIPSA. We are both students at the University of Michigan. HIPSA is an interdisciplinary organization focused on practical policy engagement, professional development, and advocacy. We hope this podcast is informative and engaging for listeners from all walks of life, and we thank you for tuning in. Please feel free to leave us a comment on our website at hipsa-um.org or email us at hipsa-execboard at umich.edu. Thanks. All right. So I want to welcome everyone to the first ever U of M HIPSA podcast. Uh, my name is Anthony DeSico. I'm a master of public health student in the nutritional sciences department here at the University of Michigan. Uh, I'm a part of the public relations committee on HIPSA and I'll be your host today for the first ever episode of our podcast. So today's topic will be food policy, and I'm super excited to have two guests with me today. We have uh, Sheila Flyshacker. I hope I pronounced that right. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then her previous intern, Megan, who is also a uh, master of public health student in the nutritional science department here at uh, U of M. So I really appreciate both of you guys uh, taking the time out of your day to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right. So I'm going to give uh, everyone a, a brief overview. So we're going to go over uh, who Sheila is, uh, her role in food and nutrition policy today, uh, and then go into a brief interview, got some questions, and then we can open it up to hear about how uh, both Sheila and Megan collaborated last summer uh, through uh, Nobrin. So to get started... Sheila is a lifelong learner who got her bachelor's degree in food and nutrition at Loyola University. She got a PhD in nutritional sciences at Penn State, and then afterwards got her law degree back at Loyola, and then completed a postdoc at UNC. Uh, and then after all that, she became a registered dietitian uh, after her dietetic internship with Iowa State University. She has had an extensive career in the space of food, health, nutrition, and policy, and has worked at the Illinois State Board of Education, the, Illinois, the uh, Institute of Food Technologists, uh, the National Institute of Health, the USDA. Uh, she even started her own LLC called Fly Health, where she consulted government stakeholders on agriculture, food, nutrition, health law and policy issues, and then also co-founded the Her Nobrin WIC Learning Collaborative. And then along the way, she taught some classes at Georgetown and UNC, uh, but then recently started her new job as the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture National Science Liaison. <laughs> so sorry if that was uh, a mouthful, but yeah, thank you again, Sheila, for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, so we can get into some of the questions. So first off, uh, so you've obviously had a very extensive career. Uh, you know, you've, you've completed a lot of schooling to get where you are today. Um, you know, how did you become interested in the field of food and nutrition, specifically in the area of law and policy? I, my interest really sparked when I started running in high school. I just really got started um, with that type of sports nutrition, sports performance type interest. And pretty much early on, right, like reading Runner's World and various books to kind of become a better runner, um, just got interested in being in sports nutrition and knew I wanted to get a PhD in nutrition science and do these cool studies to illustrate how food um, impacted performance. 
And I really got interested in amenorrhea and athletes, which was the disorder of the female athlete triad, where you saw deficiency in calories really having these strong implications for women's bone health um, and menstrual cycles. And so I was very interested in kind of pursuing graduate work in that area. And then I was at Penn State and we had the ability to rotate professors and get exposed to kind of different areas of nutrition science and just do a lot of literature review and kind of feel out like where you wanted to go with your career. And this was in 2000 to date myself. And I really just health disparities just really spoke to me thinking through um, how to address diet related health disparities, thinking through the role of childhood obesity and how early um, weight gain could have such long-term detrimental impact on diet-related health disparities, and then thinking through, you know, how do we intervene best there, right? So I kind of had um, this idea of nutrition education and promotion, but, you know, it's a very individual level and really thinking through the broader systems, environmental supports, policies that really impact what the grocery stores are in the neighborhood, what the food standards are for federal nutrition assistance programs, just the various ways we can kind of make the healthy choice, the easy choice. And so then that intersected with kind of getting a more formal training in law. This was, you know, back in early 2000s when, you know, even just talking about law and nutrition, people thought FDA law, you know, like food drug law, or thought I wanted to sue McDonald's. And so it's nice for me now who I teach um, at Georgetown, the sixth semester this spring of law students really you know, can teach to them and they have so many vocational options and where they see, even in a job, if it's not necessarily traditionally a nutrition lawyer job type, where they, they can easily see how they could um, impact, you know, making healthy choice, the easy choice with law and policy. So it's been a nice evolution. I wouldn't necessarily um, suggest this career path to folks who are in the field now, 20 years later, but for me, that made a lot of sense to kind of get where I wanted to go in terms of understanding how law and policy could be used to you know, really just impact what people are eating, particularly the most vulnerable populations. Wow, that was great. <laughs> I, I honestly uh, don't know how you stay motivated through all the schooling over the years. You know, yeah, I love what you do. I mean, I was very fortunate. I mean, I think I, I'm always, when I mentor students, I'm usually people send me their kids or they come to me thinking I'm going to be the first one to be like, yes, do this. I'm usually like, look before you leap kind of a person um, regarding any career path, education path, or job path, you know, really thinking through how it best aligns with your career goals, but also just being curious, you know, not everything's going to work out the first time and just kind of thinking through what skills, what network, what um, areas you want to live in, you know, are all kind of important pieces to this puzzle while you're kind of exploring where, where do I fit best. Um, I think most of you guys who are in public health have a natural innate passion for helping people, helping the population. And so now I feel it's just making sure we nurture that, get you in good places and making sure you don't burn out, right? That's the main thing is like when you're working in these high risk populations, it could be really daunting of like how, you know, how does this little thing I do really have this impact on these larger social determinants of health at play here? And so it's really trying to have that persistence, right? And endurance to kind of think, okay, what can I do now to help this one in front of me? Um, and then how could I kind of over my career you know, have these larger impacts. So it does take, I think, a little bit of carpe diem, which is, you know, what I use a lot, you know, kind of really maximizing your opportunities each day, but it also takes a level of persistence, right? Going back to that long distance cross-country running, right? For high school, it's like, it's a little bit of that balance, but a lot of it is, Megan heard me say this, like teamwork makes the dream work, right? Like a lot of these things that we're working on or when you're in school, you know, really it helps to kind of be in a village of people who are going to support you 
um, getting through these um, educational paths, career paths, or the issues you're working on, and really just developing a nice team to support you and to really help tackle some of these bigger issues in public health that we're trying to all um, alleviate. For sure. Yeah, it's I definitely uh, feel that, you know, as a student right now, and especially during, you know, the pandemic, it's, it's hard to, you know, connect with a lot of people, but, you know, putting yourself out there into, you know, for for me, I've, I've been joining a lot of clubs, partaking in a lot of, uh, you know, ex extracurricular activities, uh, you know, to, to sort of just feel out what's out there in terms of, you know, food and nutrition policy and, and, and the impact that I can make. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think for students, you know, just with the mentoring I've done with the University of Michigan students over the summer, Megan was, um, I had three other students test, uh, Alec and Angie Miller, who all um, were in formal internships with me this summer, and then a variety of other U of M students I just met with kind of one off, um, or as they were participating in the healthy eating research and the CDC supported nutrition, obesity and policy research network student speaker series that we hosted this summer. I think again, having those types of things this summer, I thought were really important because I just felt free guys. I mean, it's such a unprecedented way to learn, right. In terms of like all of a sudden this summer, you're not able to do practicums and be out in the field, right. Especially when you're at a master's level, you're learning all this theory and learning all this data. And then that special summer is like when you go out and get to kind of see how your skills can have impact in the real world and to not necessarily have that opportunity or have a virtual adaptation to it, to me, was just really hurt my heart. Um, and just knowing, you know, again, you're not necessarily building that network and connection that's so important at this stage. So I think you're doing the right thing of getting involved, you know, joining the student series, you know, doing internships on the, on the side or extra in addition to things you're doing and just kind of like seeing what's out there career-wise, building your network, and then just Kind of deviating your day right doing virtual school just like classroom classroom um could get really dull and if you're not especially seeing kind of like the front line of these issues or seeing where you'll have application to these skills you're learning in class you know it makes it i think even harder i say for the students that i have in my georgetown classes i'm like you're just missing those elevator conversations that you get to have with each other or just those break conversations you know especially when you're in niche class like i teach nutrition law and policy you know, you generally are meeting people who have similar interests or could be, you know, in a career path or on an internship that you might want next year. And so you really have to kind of go out of your way to kind of like individually message them or, um, you know, have me help kind of make some of those introductions for you. But I think it's really important to just kind of schedule those. I mean, as much as people don't want to be on another Zoom call, I think those elevator conversations in Zoom, right? <laughs> Um, need to make up for, I think, really important connections that you're making while you're a student. So yeah, you got to schedule just like school now and just kind of be somewhat artificial. But I think the receiving end of the other students being reached out to or the professors are going to be are going to be really happy. For sure. So to go back a little bit on uh, your work, could you talk a little bit about your current work at the USDA and, you know, describe what that entails? Sure. So I just started two weeks ago um, at the USDA, the National Institute of Food and Agriculture. And so the Department of Ag um, has seven mission areas. Many of you guys um, might know the Food and food and Nutrition Service um, very well, because that's 70% of the budget, and that's the Federal Nutrition Assistance Programs, those suite of 15 programs like SNAP and WIC, School Lunch, and then they have six other mission areas, some that work directly with farmers, some that work directly with rural development, 
and one that we call research, education, and economics. And that's really where the research happens within the agriculture and science community. And NIFA, short for the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, is really what we call like the extramural um, branch where we fund land grant, we fund universities um, to do the agricultural science needs that we need. So we do fun stuff like the GusNet program that really was founded in Michigan by the Fair Food Network, um, has a lot of roots in the state of Michigan. And you guys might know that program well um, in terms of like double up, you, what, what, I'm not exactly sure of your local variant of it, but this idea of, you know, we reward SNAP participants or incentivize them to eat more fruits and vegetables at farmers markets are now expanding in grocery stores. So we do the funding of those programs so we can see the research and evaluation and see if they have impact and then hopefully be able to scale them up and make them you know, permanent nationwide. That's the goal, kind of understanding what works. So, so in that role, are you meeting with uh, stakeholders that you know are overseeing those programs? Yeah, so this particular role is new and so the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, along with the Economic Research Service, are two research agencies in that research education economic mission area that got relocated under the Trump administration to Kansas City. So it went from like 700 employees across the two agencies to like 300. It was a massive institutional knowledge drain moving um, folks to Kansas City. And so now I came in as a national science liaison. There's six of us. And so our role is really that DC presence because that was some of the critique of moving these folks to Kansas City was that A, it's the benefit of the federal community as you're building out initiatives to have you know, the various programs at the table. And then B, as, as a stakeholder, whether you're a student, whether you're um, a scientific society, whether you're an advocacy group, it helps when you come in DC or you have a DC shop that you can go to all the different offices and not have to go out to Kansas City or go you know, different places in the world to get to all the key organizations. And so um, as a compromise to that situation, they created these positions. So my job is very much to be meeting um, internally within USDA to build out program initiatives like food, food insecurity, like nutrition, like food safety, and then thinking kind of across the federal community in response to Biden's um, priorities as one example, and then thinking through our extra external committee, you know, making sure they feel like they have an understanding of what's going on at NIFA and who, who and how to connect to. There was just with all that drainage of uh, folks leaving um, the agency, there was just kind of loss of programs or program co contact. And so a large part of my job is making sure folks know we're here, we're doing great work, and then how to make sure they know who the current contact is for their program or a grant that they're going to be applying for. So it's exciting for me. It's a lot of what I call captain coordinating, um, but that's usually really in my skill, skill set of just really trying to build collaboration, building transparency, you know, really building kind of cool initiatives that are cross-cutting across um, NIFA, across USDA, and across the government, and then really cool public-private partnerships where appropriate. That sounds like a lot of Zoom meetings. <laughs> <laughs> teams, they use teams. <laughs> teams, okay, for sure. <laughs> So you you briefly touched on uh, the Biden administration. What do you think is the future of food and nutrition in the United States? And how do you think uh, this policy area will, will develop under the new administration? Um, I mean, I think it's an exciting time. I think for, for Biden coming in, you know, it's nice when a president says right away in their executive actions, food insecurity. So I think for those of us, you know, speaking with the food and nutrition hat on, 
um, you know, excited about that, but it's also, there's a, a need. I mean, it's the reality of dealing with where we are in America with skyrocketing rates of food insecurity amongst our kids and amongst our families and elders. And so it's just a reality that that needs to be a priority of addressing food insecurity. And then for us, it's the, the intersection with obesity prevention as well. Um, there's been much written, but not quite much known yet about what the implication this is for for weight, right? I mean, there's jokes, you guys probably make it with the, your friends of like the COVID pounds, right? Um, but, you know, on kids, this is really frightening. Um, we know of accelerated weight gain, which happens in the summer months um, for really high risk populations, those who are already overweight or who are in particular high risk groups that during summer months, right? When we don't have school, they have these unstructured summer days. Um, they're not getting the school provided meals and they tend to have this accelerated weight gain that they gain this more weight during summer than they do during school, and then it's harder for them to take off. And it kind of sets them sets them up for childhood obesity and for really a trend that's really hard to reverse. Once you're obese when you're a kid, it's really hard to reverse that going forward. And so that's three months. Now we're almost going on to 12 months for many of these kids where they've been in an unstructured school day situation. We don't have national data doing the monitoring surveillance on what's going on with kids or adults right now. We halted a lot of our national monitoring um, resources like NHANE um, to, to move towards pandemic resources, right, of ending the pandemic. And just with the safety reasons of being able to do these in-person um, types of measurements that we do. And the other aspect is we get from clinical data from doctors, right? Like they're really the front lines right now of actually seeing kids and they're anecdotally sharing that yes, these kids are gaining more weight. It's hard to say, right, again, what we're what's going on nationally. And it's also, again, going back to that intersection with food insecurity, often these things are coexist, right? You could have a kid that's very much not getting the key nutrients they need and also gaining an accelerated amount of weight. And so that's really a, a twin pandemic that we're dealing with as a country is thinking through how do we address food insecurity and obesity right now and through really non-traditional networks, right? Because we're not really on the ground with kids right now in schools or childcare which those two key settings have been so effective for obesity prevention in the past. And so it's really kind of re-envisioning what we can do right now in real time and thinking, okay, how long, how much longer is this going to be the mode, right? If we move towards hybrid in many of our schools, you know, how long is that, that, um, that normal going to be the normal, right? So I think for you guys who are in these early stages of training and kind of getting in the ground running, you're going to be hitting a, a whole different um, population across the life cycle that really is going to probably have the coexistence of food insecurity and obesity prevention. We know even if we get through this pandemic, through the spring or when we got vaccinations um, happening nationwide, the economic ramifications of this will likely take years. We think of the Great Depression that happened 10 years ago, you know, that took three to four years, depending on where you lived and what community you were in. And so again, the economic economic aspects really tie into that food insecurity scare. So for most of your professional and nutrition policy, I'd say in the next five to 10 years is very much going to be on food insecurity and also the coexistence of obesity prevention. And so I focus in, and Megan knows from our work, we focus a lot on the federal nutrition assistance programs. They have such tremendous impact and reach. I mean, think of SNAP right now, there's over 40 million participants in that program each month. And so the ability to modify that program where it could strengthen the public health impacts of it just has a tremendous impact and reach that you can do the, the federal nutrition assistance programs. Again, just thinking of school lunch, when we had kids in school, we did stronger nutrition standards 
we already saw tremendous impact on them changing preferences, right? They were talking to your mom about salad. Um, they, in some instances, the kids were having better weight um, profiles. And again, just better dietary profiles. We generally are finding kids ate better when they ate the school lunch than they, what they ate at home or when they ate previous school meals pre-improvement of standards. So I think, again, for us, when we think of like the policy tools, that federal nutrition um, assistance program is going to be really important. And I think, again, that's across the life cycle. You think of WIC, you think of the Older um, Nutrition Act for elders, and then you think of um, for special populations like the food distribution program on Indian reservations. Um, we have a variety of programs that are, could be very, very tailored um, in the next couple of years to, to just really get the best benefit that we can for ha having them both on food insecurity and obesity prevention. Yeah, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think I read a statistic from Feeding America that said, you know, before the pandemic, it was about 36 million people that were experiencing food insecurity in America. And then now it's somewhere up to like 54 million with 17 million of those people, in, including children. So it really, it speaks to how, how you know, stark the situation. You remember that statistic. I just wrote that the <laughs> other day. So <laughs> yeah. very impressive memory. Yes, I definitely... Pre-pandemic, we were, the Economic Research Service is um, the national um, monitoring and surveillance for food insecurity. And we had gotten to about um, a little less than 11% that were experiencing food insecurity. And then they've already said, you know, it's upward, it's tripled, you know, and, and then particularly under high-risk populations, it's it's gone to skyrocketing levels. Um, so it is important. It's important that we monitor these things so we can show if we're having impact but also realizing some of our data collection methods right now are very challenged, right? We're not going door to door and asking folks what's going on. And again, we're talking about things like food insecurity that generally we've created a lot of social stigma about. And so people aren't necessarily reporting as accurately um, as we'd like to in terms of actually having a real pulse on like the situation at a household level. I definitely agree. So, so yeah, you, Megan has uh, had experience under you uh, working at the Her and Oprah group. Um, would you guys mind talking about that bit a bit and then, you know, explaining what, what really like went down? Yeah, well, Megan actually worked on two projects. So Megan, do you want to share a little bit about how you heard about the internship opportunity and maybe talk about the two papers you were working on? Yeah, definitely. So um, I was actually originally before COVID, I had this big internship plan. I was supposed to go to Ethiopia and it was going to be amazing. And then obviously I couldn't because of COVID. Um, but then a faculty member in the nutritional sciences department, Kate Bauer, sent us this email. It had all of the her and Oprah internship information in it. I did have some interest in um, health policy and nutrition policy. So I emailed Sheila and then the rest is history. <laughs> and it was great. Um, Sheila, like the first time I called Sheila, I your energy genuinely just helped me get through <laughs> the pandemic. <laughs> I felt like I just needed to say that. But um, in terms of the specific project that we worked on, um, so it was a narrative review. So basically a review of systematic reviews that looked at co-benefits of healthy eating policies. I just looked at the school-based literature, but there was also um, the healthcare literature, the community literature. So um, programs like WIC. And then why am I drawing a blank on the fourth one? And early child care centers. Yes, ECE. Um, so I basically started with hundreds and hundreds, thousands 
thousands of abstracts um, that I had to sort through. And then we ended up coding those. And then we ultimately synthesized that into a paper that is in the process of being submitted for publication. Um, and then, so that was kind of a summary of the project I did with Sheila. And then through my work with Sheila and through my experience um, with Noprin, I was connected to a couple of researchers out of Stanford and I got to help them code um, sort of a similar topic area, but we coded all of the school districts in California looking at school meal provision during the pandemic. Um, and they're also, they're looking to publish that paper as well. I don't have the details yet. But yeah, that's sort of like a basic summary. And these are so important. When we think of the COVID adaptations and then just the need around food insecure and obesity prevention, there was just so much need and just a lot of unknowns of how long this is going to take, what are the impacts, and then you know, funding streams were not aligned for something of this nature, particularly in the research line. Congress um, provided a lot of uh, authorizations and appropriations to USDA on federal nutrition assistance programs, but never made really explicit um, huge grant funding efforts within the agency or external to, to evaluate um, any of these things. And so it really fell on in-kind contributions like we were working on through the HER and NOPEN group or um, you know, ultimately foundations like Healthy Eating Research that works with Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, you know, that came up with special pools of money to support some grants, um, you know, midstream in their financial year um, to look at what was going on with COVID. So we were very lucky, you know, Kate Bauer had reached out um, at the end of spring saying how some of the students were having trouble with their internship placements and could we use any interns? And I generally, as Megan, I'm very pro student, so I was like, sure. We'll make it happen. But then I also was worried because these programs are really on steroids in terms of what was happening, that like the students jumping on some of our working group calls would be kind of lost or not sure. And so that's why we really tried to create the student um, speaker series so we can get them kind of walking through the various adaptations that are happening across the food system and the federal safety net. And then also kind of get some sense of vocation, right? Like, could this be a future for them? Maybe their eyes are open for the first time to federal nutrition assistance programs. And then hopefully build a network within and among themselves, just kind of hearing what the various projects each of them are working on. So we had over 200 students over the summer participate in the student speaker series. And then we had about 20 students who ended up getting supported in some shape or form or were through, through relevant members working on relevant projects. Um, and then they did a student showcase at the end. So Megan, Tess, Alec, and Angie, all from the University of Michigan, got to present that work. And Megan was one of the, the, the students who had two projects that got to share on that. And the co-benefits was a very big undertaking. So um, Megan shared how it was the four different uh, sectors, uh, early child care schools, the community retail environment, and then healthcare. And it was really helpful for me at that point to have students who help with that inter-rater reliability coding. I think as students, when you're in master's programs and you're kind of figuring out, like, should you do research? Should you help a professor, you know, some of these projects are just really nuts and bolts ways to kind of get to know the literature, get to know methodology. And also the nice way is like they're virtual. And some of these are very much like you could fit them in, in your own schedule, right? As you're doing other things or working on other jobs or taking classes. So as you have those opportunities, I think as, as a master's student, it's nice to kind of seek those out. And then in Megan's case, she, she got presentation opportunities and also publication opportunities. She's on a star-studded um, author list. So, you know, indirectly gets to get connected to a lot of high-level folks. So I encourage students as they get those opportunities, sometimes they're unpaid, sometimes they're small stipend, 
Um, and sometimes they're not like sexy work in terms of data um, analyses, but I think they're important pieces that you can see how they contribute to the overall research process. And I also got to take some of those skills and sort of Sheila's knowledge back with me. I'm also the president of a student organization called Student Advocates for Nutrition. And we actually partnered with HIPSA last semester to do a letter writing workshop where we drafted letters to our state legislators advocating for the passage of House Resolution 0251, which was a resolution to urge the USDA to grant a federal waiver to temporarily suspend the rules that make college students ineligible for SNAP benefits. Um, and so that was also a really cool opportunity and something I probably wouldn't have done if I hadn't had this internship opportunity this summer. And that was fun for me as well. I was working with Melissa Laska, who is really one of our nation's expert in that college um, nutrition space. And so she had been tracking and looking at the college food insecurity rising issue over the last decade. And so she had saw something I set where I had listed some of the rising legislative um, agendas that were relevant to college food insecurity and asked me if I could help her to do a national scan. And then we also did a state scan. And so it was nice for me because that, that's not my area of expertise to through actually the summer got to meet and hang out with a lot of college students or grad students who are working on these types of college level um, initiatives. So it was nice for me to kind of get that like, okay, like that, that's how this all, all works. So it's nice when like, like I said, you build networks or you reach out to people, you have a very important knowledge that, you know, it's very bi-directional. So Megan, it was helpful for me because when we were doing the state assessment, we had finished it, I think, right before Michigan had put their resolution in. So I was like, wait, what's this one you're talking about? So then we had to update our state one. So Michigan got in. So that was a plug for Michigan. They got captured in our state analysis. And then we were able to work with Megan to kind of think through, okay, how strategically, um, you know, should you approach the workshop approach or letter writing approach? And I think a lot of that work um, also bubbled up to Congress where they ended up in the, the resolution for um, the fiscal year appropriations process and for the related uh, included stimulus um, made some flexibilities and provisions around the college SNAP rule. So some of these little research projects and kind of thing, advocacy things that are happening on the local level or college campus level bubble up to so, so some really big, important impacts. So we'll hopefully see some improvements of that um, widening of the college SNAP rule um, in the coming year. I can I can definitely attest to the uh, letter workshop. Uh, I was there. I remember that. That was a, a very interesting, and I'm glad I got to do that experience. So I, I know we're kind of running low on time. Uh, I got one more question for you guys. So, uh, you know, you, you sort of hit on it a little bit, but what are some ways that students like me uh, and other students at the University of Michigan and, and across the country can, can get involved with food and nutrition policy work? So one of the things that, you know, particularly as we had all the students come on this summer, um, her has uh, taken on um, a weekly digest. I think both of you guys are on it. And so I've tried to alert Lindsay. I sent her most of the jobs, but I tried to alert her that I think the students want that. right? <laughs> um, and so I try my best through that process of, um, and then through the relevant meetings we had of exposing students to the various collaborators, the various government agencies, the various players in this space. So when you just even look through that digest, and if you're not on it, feel free to email me and we'll make sure you get on it. But in that weekly digest, again, kind of look at it where, hey, you're getting a sense of what's going on in public health nutrition, but really thinking through, okay, who's doing what? Um, how do they do this? You know, do they, like, what do they employ? Are these PhD people? Are these, like, 
dietitians, you know, who's doing these jobs and, and who's putting up these reports is like the type of agency or organization. And then obviously there's a very big job section. So we try to be very inclusive. Obviously it's very DC or policy heavy, just in terms of what comes my way. But again, I also want you to kind of get a flavor of like, what are the opportunities in this space? Even if you're not necessarily on the job market and you're, or you're looking very much an internship, you're just having some long-term goals of like, okay, what are the job recommendations or the prereqs? What, what does this position do? I think just getting exposure um, through that job board we have, that's very niche to public health nutrition, I think will be a helpful way to kind of get a sense of like, what are the opportunities? What are people talking about? What's the media talking about? And then get a sense of like, okay, well, I wasn't really in food insecurity, right? I was really more into like improving restaurants, right? But restaurants are closed right now. So like, what do we do, you know, to adapt in that sense? I mean, I think you're going to have some adaptations to maybe what you went to school for a year ago and what's happening in the COVID context. But hopefully you just get a sense of like what's hot, what's happening, who's doing what, what are the opportunities in the short and long term? And again, hopefully the whole point of NOPRIN, right, is it's a network. And so hopefully you can start seeing some names there too and reach out and connect in some shape or form. And again, they might be somebody you just learn from how to do something. You might learn in their network, you know, a job that um, would be of interest to you, or you just get a sense of their career path as you're kind of like making decisions about what to do. So I think those are, it's a plug for, you know, joining the weekly digest or at least following that. But I do think it's a nice way to kind of get exposed to like, what are the big issues? What are some of the job opportunities out there? And then who are the players in this space, right? It is ultimately a pretty small world when you think about food policy, although it's such an important piece, right? That we think um, touches on every aspect of life, right? So while it's very vast, um, it's, off, it's often a kind of a small key community that's really working on these things. So I think that's the nice thing is just kind of get exposure, who's in it, who's doing what, and then really hopefully getting, you know, connected to them by name and having, having these types of calls with them on one-on-one basis too. Megan, you have some thoughts of, of what you've learned so far from doing internships and kind of being on the job, job market or well, internship market, but almost job market. I mean, I agree with what you said. I think that the NOPRA network um, was a really beneficial opportunity for me in terms of connections and then having a connection with you, I feel very grateful for and Aaron also and everyone that I kind of had the opportunity to collaborate with. I'm not sure. I'm thinking more like School of Public Health for those students. I know that there's some faculty in the Nutritional Sciences Department that do food insecurity work. I don't know if they also collaborate. I'm sure they do with HMP professors. So maybe just checking in with your professors also if you kind of want to get a little more information on some research that they do. But Awesome. Well, thank you guys for uh, joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been nice to connect with you, Andrew. Feel free to circle back. And if you haven't, if any of the students have any questions, feel free to give them my email and email. And hopefully you have the paper too when this goes up. Yeah. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Thanks for having us. I feel like this is a historical moment. Isn't it the first one? First ever podcast from the Health Policy Student Association. So yeah. <laughs> Well, and feel free, I mean, as you kind of get a sense of like what works on this, I mean, I do think students like to hear people's career paths. So if you know, like, hey, there's a ton of people that like this job or that job. I mean, if I know anybody in that network, like, just let me know and I can see if I find one. I mean, you guys are known for like the Blue Mafia, right? Like you should have a really very deep bench, right, to ask people um, within your network to do this. And I'm sure all the UM alumni I know would do this in no problem. So just don't be shy to ask people. 
For sure. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, yeah, thank you guys again for both coming. Uh, to all the listeners, stay safe, and I wish you guys all a great rest of your day.